This podcast is brought to you by The Empowerment Project. Research proves that empowerment self-defense training makes you safer, period. I want you to have a great self-defense toolkit so you can create strong boundaries, speak with confidence, and take up all the space that you deserve in the world. We'll hear stories from survivors and find out what worked for them and why. We'll interview leaders in the field and talk about tips, concepts, and really easy things that you could do to make yourself safer and interrupt the cycle of violence. I've taught self-defense classes for over 30 years, and I promise to teach you everything I know. Ultimately, I'm going to want you to get some in-person training, but a great empowerment self-defense class is more than just the physical skills. The list of things I want to teach you is endless, so let's get to it. My name is Sylvia Smart, and welcome to The Empowerment Project. Hi, listeners. I wanted to give you a little pre-intro to our guest today. Jake Sinclair is a really wonderful person who has spent his lifetime helping to make the world a better place, and his story is very much informed by his early life. I first heard about Jake from a friend of mine, Annie, who I used to train martial arts with. She and I have reached out to one another over the years, and recently she became aware of this podcast, the Empowerment Podcast by Naga, and she told me about Jake. I agreed with her that his story is one that really needs to be told. Often when we're teaching empowerment self-defense, it's women-centered, but little boys, teen boys, and adult men are also sexually assaulted. According to RAIN, that's R-A-I-N-N, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, one out of every 10 rape victims are male, and about 3%, or one in 33 American men, have experienced an attempted or a completed rape. So this is a story that needs to be told and needs to be heard. Of course, as you know by now, I want you to take care of yourself. Breathe. Listen to this episode while you're out on a walk with your doggy. Or stop listening if it gets to feel like it's too much. Or listen with a friend. Whatever you need to do to take care of yourself, because the content is tough. We're going to be discussing sexual assault and its traumatic impact on a person whose voice you'll be hearing, and who you, like me, will grow to admire and really respect. Okay, take a deep breath, and let's do this. Jake is an amazing guy, and his story is one not just of survival, but of beauty and compassion. You're going to love him. Hey, listeners, hello. Welcome back. Uh, Glad that you're here. I'm really excited to introduce you to my guest, Jake Sinclair. And uh, Jake and I got a chance to chat on the phone yesterday. He's got an amazing story. He's got a lot of information to share And I am going to turn this over pretty quickly to you, Jake, so you can tell us about who you are and about your journey and uh, all the information we want you to download for us. So welcome and uh, 
tell us tell us about yourself. Uh, hi, Sylvia. Um, and that's a really wide open question. I guess if you were to ask me who I am, first and foremost, <laughs> I'd say, yeah, at the core of my identity is that I am a survivor of uh, of extreme child abuse, and uh, that would include physical, sexual, all the all the things they do to you, and um, so that's where I started as a sensitive little boy and now I'm a 67 year old man and um, I think you you engaged with me through a mutual friend and Annie Muller who's somebody I really admire and we do the same work that's how I see us that is we're trying to help individuals young and old resist and prevent um, being violenced against um, primarily sexual, I believe, but also any kind of assault. And so in my journey through trying to overcome, heal from, get over what happened to me, I ended up as a pediatrician and then while still in training began to develop programs for young people who had had my same experience. My first was now 30 years ago, I started a program for homeless youth in San Francisco and ran that for six and a half years. And then 22 years ago, I started a program in Africa, uh, which evolved into uh, the primary component of our program is to help young people, boys and girls, but initially just to help girls learn the skills necessary to stop uh, an assailant, a rapist, usually. Uh, and we ended up focused in Africa because it's incredibly common there. Uh, where the, Amongst the places that we work, uh, most commonly are huge slums in Nairobi. Uh, there's a population of 2 million people at work or that live in those slums in Nairobi, Kenya, and we, uh, we developed a program that cuts rape by 50%. Uh, where, wherever we teach, um, it's primarily in schools because that's where the kids are. We teach kids who are 10 to 20 years old, so fifth grade to senior in high school there. And it's, it's about focusing on uh, empowering girls to stop an assailant, which is just so difficult for people to believe, but so uh, true and scientifically proven, which still makes us wonder, like, why can't people believe this, that girls, uh, women, um, we also, we teach, we teach from like 10 years old up to grandmothers. Unfortunately, in, in Kenya, we, we started with grandmothers because they are the targets of rapists. Um, at that point in time, this is 20 years ago, 20 some years ago, people believed they were AIDS free. And so they would be raped, oftentimes gang raped, and oftentimes to death, uh, for some days to death. So that's the first programming we did. And these are frail elderly women who, when they learn the techniques that you teach, Sylvia, um, they stopped rapists. Um, and it's, it's just like, yeah, how is that possible? Well, um, their favorite technique is the is the fingernails on the eyes, you know, blind them. Uh, 
or they use their walking stick um, or et cetera. And, um, and then going from grandmothers, we started to teach kids in school. Uh, the other really shocking, terrible statistic is where we work. High school girls, one in four of them are raped every year. So in America, that's, you know, a tiny fraction of that. Maybe it's one in 500, hard stat to get, but there it's one in four. And high school girls, all the way down to 10-year-olds. A couple key features of, of rapists is they're cowards. Um, and they're not even that bright. And they're actually, they're points of vulnerability in a sexual assault where like the guy has to take his pants off and... In that moment, you know, girls that are empowered and have learned these strategies, it's a, it's a six-week, two-hour-per-session course, so it's 12 hours, and really it starts with, you know, boundary setting and um, awareness and all the things that would prevent you even from getting into that situation, the use of voice, calling for help, etc., and then self-defense physically is, is really if it's the last and, and best option. But even young girls can disable an attacker and uh, devastating techniques that I'm sure you teach in your classes um, that can disable an, an attacker. It's not about fighting or winning. It's about disabling your attacker and getting away. So at this point, we've taught uh, approaching a half a million girls and We've published all these papers, nine papers now, through Stanford, Johns Hopkins, uh, Karolinska, big institutions that have proven that somewhere north of 200 to 250,000 of these girls have, have successfully used these skills in the year following to stop an attacker. So that's, I think, how you met me, and uh, because that's what you do. That's what you do in America. That was a that was a great thumbnail, um, and I mean there are so many things that we could talk about, um, like just just these statistics. The research that you've done is so in line with with the research that Jocelyn Hollander, Hollander at the University of Oregon and Charlene Zen up in Canada have done, and it's just mind blowing that we have the data that proves without the shadow of a doubt that when you teach young women and women self-defense, it lowers the assault rate by 50%. Hello, why aren't we teaching this in schools? Why aren't we teaching this at community centers? Why don't we start with kids when they're young? I also love, I'd love to hear more about your work with the boys on around consent and the work that you do. Uh, but yeah, there's so much to talk about, but yeah, let's talk about, let's pull it back. Let's talk about your story. That was a great thumbnail. Uh, you've got a lot to share. Um, I was particularly interested in work in, in, in having this conversation with you because I think in our society, we talk, when we talk about sexual assault, we primarily think about women. Um, and we know that men and boys are also vulnerable to sexual assault and that it carries with it particular issues in terms of the shame that goes with it, in terms of the 
dealing with that trauma and coping skills. So I'd love to hear as much as you care to share about what your childhood was like, what that was like for you, what it was like being a boy, um, how you moved through that and got to this place where you've turned it around and moved into this place where you actually are using that process of healing from that and that sensitivity to that to make the world a better place because it's really cool Jake what you're doing with that and so I'd love to hear like your origin story a little bit more as much as you'd like to share I know we'd love to hear about it yeah um I have had so much therapy that I'll share anything at this point it doesn't have the sting when I choose the least <laughs> I, I say that oftentimes because I'm a male leader of a program that stops sexual assault founder leader. And people are like, what's that old white guy doing here? You know, it's just like a woman's issue. So I, I said to qualify myself, like, yeah, I was, you know, physically, sexually, and then people, are, oh, that's what he's doing here. Um, and then there's this, you know, like, oh, I'm so sorry thing. And yeah, it's like, Thank goodness I've been through a lot of therapy. I don't have to like process it as I go. But if you ask me to, my origin story is I was, I have two sisters. I'm a middle either side. And my father started on us really young in infancy. This is, I'm, I'm assuming people who are listening to this have, maybe some of them even been sexually assaulted. And that's who I'm talking to. Um, but as a pediatrician, like to quiet a baby, you stick in the in the nursery, you have to listen to these crying babies to see if they have a heart murmur. Hundreds, thousands, if you work for a long time, and you put your finger in their mouth because they have a suck reflex and, uh, and it quiets them. And that's when my dad started on us, you know, when we were infants. And uh, I just try to imagine like what that, what, what the cum of your dad does to you when you, I don't know, spit it out. So who knows, but that we just kept going from there. Um, got tired of me as a boy when I was nine and kept going with my little sister, he and his friends till she was 18. Um, so it was, uh, he was, he was advanced level, um, psychopath. Yeah. So he got his friends involved and uh, they would uh, tie us up and beat us because got him off and then they'd rape us. And it was, uh, it was bad ritual stuff, all of it. Yeah. And I, I just blocked that out and I knew that I hated my father and I didn't really know why. Um, we were all, all three of us blocked it out. My sister didn't remember until she was 32. I was 34. And then uh, and then it just all came roaring back. And I found myself just puking in a toilet, you know, just violently having that, uh, the, the tendrils of that experience kind of roar through my being. Now for what is uh, 37 years. Um, and, uh, and the hardest thing I think for us as survivors is believing it, you know, that all of the ways that they manipulate us 
our utter helplessness in the face of our primary caretaker just telling us shit like oh this is good for you you know do it so you'll like it all the stuff that and you better and then the horrible things that they do to us um to make us not tell um for me it was uh he would yeah the worst thing that was done to me is he tied me up stuffed me head first in a sleeping bag and locked me in a dark closet and uh and i to this day you know have terrible claustrophobia from that as I get really into processing, like, mm-hmm. I feel guilty that I didn't die, you know, that I kept breathing, like really deep kind of, we talk about shame, Sylvia, and it's like the two things they do to you, in my experience, and what I've heard from others in groups is it's a combination, like a cocktail of shame, terrible shame, you know, it's wrong, you know, and yet, you know, you're not maybe even resisting because you know it's hopeless and all the shame of like it's just sex it's the worst thing i'd rather that they he hung me up by my ankles and just beat me with a hose you know then it would be like that dude is bad and nothing wrong with me but it's sex there's pleasure receptors i had to learn that as a doctor like it's t- tough luck you know you, you they they are activated and then you know it's oh that's just all the ways that shame kind of like curls itself up inside you and and just like drags you into the earth the rest of your life mixed with terror all the shit they did to you even if it's not physical just that you're terrified of being abandoned like that's your primary most instinctive like i can't be abandoned which is why you tell yourself stories about how you know it's, it's not them. It's, you know, they love me. All the, all the ridiculous stories as I look back that I try to tell myself that my dad loved me and I was bad, you know, cause I could change that. And, you know, most everybody who's been through a lot of therapy knows all these like weird, uh, conniptions, psychological conniptions you put yourself through to survive, um, that take year, years to right. unwind from. So you know, my first my first encounter with hope was with supernatural finding God in the woods. You know, like this voice that I found that I call God, and um, and then spending the rest of my life like standing in the woods. Right now, I'm in the woods. You're talking to me. I'm in the middle of the woods. <laughs> a lot of a lot of damaged people end up here, and uh, and uh, you know, I live in this beautiful place in the middle of the national it's kind of cool but it's also like how familiar is this like trying to learn that voice that says you know very quietly like you're gonna be okay you know it's what's fault you're safe you're you're, you're good you know like just like anybody who's a survivor you know like trying to develop a stronger voice that says it's not my fault i i'm good you know that takes for freaking ever you know i'm so many so I think I've, I think I told you yesterday, I, I couldn't really count how many, but it's somewhere between 10 and 15 therapists that I moved through as I began to recover. My first therapist, I remember I would bring my leather motorcycle coat into his office and he's on the second floor. This is in San Francisco in, in the city and just starts screaming, you know, fuck you, you fucking, you know, just as loud as I could into my coat and not knowing how loud it was. 
until, you know, a few times people would scream it from the street, you know, through the window, you'd hear it on the second floor. Fuck you too. asking you know, like the poor therapist sitting on their, <laughs> on their hand, like, Oh my God, what's this guy going to do? And, uh, all the way to even way like past that, like going into a therapist's office and bringing the sleeping bag in handcuffs and handcuffing my hands behind my back. Uh, which I couldn't do, which the therapist is like, all right, I'll do that. I don't like it, but I'll, you know, they go to a sleeping bag, like, trying to get over claustrophobia. Like my journey through therapy from, you know, talk therapy to whatever else was long and varied. But the most, the thing that healed me the most was uh, groups, definitely. And it's really too bad in America. There aren't more groups. I was fortunate enough to live in, in the Bay Area where they're, they're both like the 12 step groups incest survivors anonymous isa and asa no no sia sexual assault and i'm saying it wrong but anyway there's two similar 12-step groups and then there's one called aska in san francisco adult survivors of child abuse that i got into in in the last in the later stages of healing it was phenomenal and then just don't talk forever like probably the most powerfully i got out of that which is surprising Two things. One is the ability to go into that state, to go into your kid and grieve and, you know, sob, choke, all, you know, but grieving and come out of it in four minutes because that's how much time you had. And then uh, I learned that. And no, boy, if you just try, try doing that, anybody who's listening or learning that, because it's, I believe, it's my opinion, so necessary to process like the raw core of it um as i don't know it's who understands i've never heard it explained well comes out of you and at the end of that particular meeting unlike a 12-step meeting the leader would say thank you jake and would you like to receive feedback and then up to three people could say like usually it was like oh my god i'm so sorry kind of thing but like the thing that would just make me start sobbing again was just that they believed me here i was Years after, and I got, I didn't mention, got a full confession out of my perpetrator, my dad. I got to, after the full confession, and I knew there was no more coming, beat the shit out of him, you know, as a, as an adult at 34 years old, throw him against the window, breaks, he's bleeding, and I jumped on top of him, started choking. I got to sit in front of him and spit in his face and be like, you fucking, you know, just, you're, I got to do the whole thing after receiving the full confession, which is gold. I wrote it all down. And still, here I am. That's probably 20 years later. I'm still hearing from people who hear my story. They believe me. And it's so powerful. That's how how difficult it is to just get to, I'm telling the truth. It wasn't my fault. They're bad. And uh, that's, yeah. okay, there you go. I don't know if you asked yeah. for that long a story of personal thumbnail, but that's that's been my journey. That that's a powerful journey, and I want to hear more about. Um, I think there was some other, like maybe legal maneuvers that you did with your dad, which I would love to hear about. And then I just wanted to make a little comment, which is. The beauty of what you're talking about, it doesn't surprise me that you have found such 
great healing in within a community, uh, within a group of people who hear you, see you, accept you, believe you, love you anyway, because it's that 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 terror and that shame, the coping skills of being a kid and the stories that you had to tell yourself in order to survive included, it's my fault. And that is so common amongst survivors. It's my fault. I'm bad. And so the piece of that that's so damaging is how we feel we need to carry it inside alone and not share it because it's so shameful. And that, so again, I'm just saying it doesn't surprise me. It's a beautiful story that when you were able to move into groups with other people who had similar experiences, you realized you're not alone. You're seen, you're believed, you're supported, you're held really powerful. Absolutely. Could you talk a little bit about uh, the journey that you had with your sister around holding your dad accountable legally? Yeah. When, when we remember that all happened pretty quick. Um, then I confronted him. I, I kind of, my own form of manipulation, <laughs> it doesn't even sound plausible, but kind of pumping him. I'm like, Hey, it's not such a big deal. You know, you could help me though. You know, you could be my hero now. And God, their egos are so inflated. You know, it's like, that's how stupid they are. Got the confession and then went immediately into suing that fucker, you know, and that was great because he really had no defense. There were two of us and they're also worried about their image. So uh, it it was a civil trial our statute of limitations had expired, but he, he was forced to settle and sell his house. And that felt really good, um, to pay us. And, uh, you know, we both just blew through the money cause we weren't that healthy at the point, but it felt good <laughs> that he had to suffer some. And, uh, and also felt good. Like I, I was running that program for homeless sure. kids. One of my favorite parts, Later, and I got profiled in an SF paper, and and the invest the journalist like investigated. There it was there was a court case. He goes and you know in the articles, like, and there's a court case. You know that so just like any kind of external, you're so desperate to prove that it's true. Was it was really good both of those parts as validation. Yeah, that's so awesome. I think you said that you know what that validation that when. Uh, when it was obvious to everybody that your dad, when he confessed, it was such a huge relief. Yeah. I mean, he never confessed in, in that's the court what case. Like he, in fact, one of the conditions of him settling was we would never, you know, tell anybody or he had no admission of guilt, which is, you know, I'm telling everybody, I know the rest of my life. I knocked one of his neighbor's doors. That was also fun. You know, when every single neighbor <laughs> knocked on the door and, you know, it's pretty somber, uh, interaction but it was like this guy that guy over there that's my dad he's that was great um but just yeah like coming to the light okay 
Um, but yeah, the, re- the relief of his confession is the detail of writing it down. And then as you work for those memories, you know, what exactly did you do to us? You know, ice, you know, to a kid, man, you hold, you can hold ice on somebody and it hurts like hell. Anybody who's like, you know, put ice on a wound, whatever, he feels like you're going to burn your skin off, but doesn't leave a mark. There's all these, like all these subtle things he told us that he did. That's a huge relief. Like as you go back into your memories. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's long though. You know, it's long more the irony of like having an actual confession of knowing of him actually capitulating and, and settling it, you know, still it's like years later, I'm describing that experience where people in a group hear me and listen to me and believe me. And I get this huge relief, like, oh, my God, I'm telling the truth. Another thing about groups um, that's yeah. powerful, not just healing, nurturing, supporting, believing, but it's like when they tell their story, you you have incredible sympathy. You know, you, it does, you don't even question. You can hear when someone yeah. is telling the truth, right? And when they're not. Okay, but when you can hear somebody telling the truth, and it's like, and there's some part of your mind that's trying to like get healed. It's like, whoa, you know, I believe them, you know, so probably I'm telling the truth too, you know, or there's also hearing it, you know, and there's, there's, and and it's not like I, I would say as I got further along, no, even coincidentally. You know, I went to a lot of different 12-step meetings. You know, I went to every 12-step meeting, basically, which is like, I would like to be an addict, you know, like a drug addict or an alcoholic or something. I just can't seem to do that. You know, I'm I'm addicted to work, right? I'm addicted to saving the world, you know? And um, because, you know, that's the... That's the antidote for the shame. Like if I could just become a doctor, you know, then, then I would be okay. Right. Which of course didn't work. And then if I could just save the world, like, so, so that could get you. And then, you know, saving people, you know, went through two marriages, 10 years, the first 20, like some progress, um, trying to save the person. And, you know, so you, as you know, people who have been abused, you know, we end up in these relationships that are dysfunctional and destructive. Hey man, that's not our fault either. <laughs> I would say like, like another way to describe the most right. right after I would say survival as a kid, you know, you know, it's cold outside. I was raised in Denver for part of it. It's like, Hey man, if I lose this dad, I'm dead. Some part of primal part of you knows that right. Right after that survival thing is to be understood as the deepest human need. I read that and I've come to believe it. It's like, so you end up with people who are from your same wound or some version of it. And a couple of people, you know, really messed up trying to like help each other. It's not an, you know, an antidote to a, or a cure for a, anyways, it doesn't make a great marriage. So it's like, you know, codependence anonymous. Um, I went through all the like addiction, basic addiction ones even without having them like gamblers anonymous and NA and AA and get to AA is the purest, most powerful group meeting, even more than the child abuse one, I would say um, I've ever been to, but I just didn't fit. Well, you'd sit down with somebody in a, cause you go out and have coffee with guys that you relate to in the meeting. They'd be like, okay, yeah, this is my drinking history, the drunk log, we call it. And then how about you? And I'd be like, well, you know, I'm, 
I'm addicted to saving the world. They'd be like, oh, come on, man. That's that's not, doesn't belong here. So it's like, but still I would encourage people because those are everywhere. AA is everywhere. It's a lot of the similar dynamics, you know, that you were, they're dealing with. Their parents were mostly abusive. And and I, I another irony is like, you know, I came to Jesus when I was 19 on LSD in the woods, you know, and and then kind of trying to build a relationship with God from there. 40 years later, the deepest part of me looks at God as, yep, he's saying, nope, he's being nice to me, but like, it's just so he can get me alone in the room and fuck me. You know, that's, I mean, like that was like 40 years of trying to, and you know, my journey through Christianity is like, take a look today. If you want to try to find a Christian in America, good luck, you know, like, they're voting for Trump, you know, like what? Like, so trying to find the only real Christians I think I've met, myself included, the only real, you know, are in Africa, you know, or Mother Teresa's nuns, you know, so you good luck finding them in the church. Anybody who would listen to this, who's a survivor, who's in a church, like, man, the Christian church is not good at survivor people. They're like, what's up, man? We prayed for you last week. Why aren't you well? You know, it's like, aren't you over it yet? So my my journey to even God came from uh, uh, it's partly NA, but more like um, Al-Anon meetings, which are great for survivors, I would say. And hearing the story of this power, you know, this higher power, whatever it is, this energy, whatever you want to call it, from every walk of life, you know, young, old, addict, not addict. Uh, gay, straight, all right. You know, everybody tells this story of this thing, you know, this energy that is loving. It's how I became a Christian, I guess, in the way that I would define one. And so it's like those meet all of those group meetings are not just not just in relationship specifically to being sexually abused or even physically abused. I find helpful around all the things we just that you mentioned sylvia that which you know we're talking about like the the supernatural act of confessing your deepest secrets and others in a room and like hey i'm not so bad or you know i believe all that stuff happens in those so anywhere you are in this country you have access to that and um anyway that's from my standpoint is what helped me the most That's great. I I believe in 12-step programs for sure and find lots of higher power in those rooms for sure. Um, Can I, I, I'd like to ask you a question just as, um, just as a person who cares. And I know that a lot of our listeners are deeply caring people as well. My question is when you were a kid, when you were going through all of this, even as a young adult, did you have any allies? Did you have any um, safe adults you could just spend time with? Or did you have any friends who knew what was going on or did you feel, I mean, it sounds like you were also threatened not to tell. So it wouldn't surprise me if you had, you know, if you kept the whole thing secret always, but at, 
I guess what I'm saying is, what I'm asking is, as a kid, what, is there anything that some adult who's sensitive to these things, who knows the signs, could have done to help you? Or did someone do something that could help you? It doesn't sound like it. Um, So yeah, as someone who is a survivor, looking back, for someone like me, who does do a lot of work with kids, for any, any of our listeners who care about kids, what are things that would be helpful? Like helpful 101. Could you, could you give us some, some thoughts? What would, what would you have wanted? What would have, do you know where I'm going with this? Like, yeah, it's, what were you yearning? Were you yearning for oh, someone to do something? Course. And if so, what? Anybody who's a survivor yeah. is yearning. Somebody please help me. Yeah. Get me out of here. Believe me. Help me. Believe, you know, all that is so deep. Yearning for anyone to come and get you out of there. Just for someone to believe you. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, there's there's your dad and his friends. And then there's your mom who's like, Everything's fine, right, kids? Right? Nothing, you know. So it's like, you know, my I would say that mine, you know, I've, I've met some people in groups who were more extreme, um, but mine is pretty far out there because it's, you know, groups of men and torture basically. And but anywhere on that spectrum, you are yearning for someone yeah. to believe you. And I, I know I can't say anybody ever. I know. I think look at me. As I said, I, I kept it for myself. I couldn't even allow myself, to, my adult conscious mind, to access it until I was so right. So when it, but I, but I, so I work with kids forever. You know, I came in. I was a school teacher, a pediatrician. You know, that's all. Yeah. And so if you're talking to people who maybe aren't don't have that particular wound, but wanna, you know, help, it's like it's so simple. You know, it's like you've done it, Sylvia. All you know, like you hear a kid tell their story. And you listen to them and you believe them yep. and you've tried to find yeah. beautiful parts of a kid and you say, wow, you're so good at that, you know, or you're, I, you know, just, yeah, just being heard and seen and believed is the universal superpower. That's love, you know, at its deepest core, yeah. being heard and seen and valued and believed. Yeah, just you just do that all day long. You may never even know that that kid is being changed, transformed by that. He, they might not become conscious of it at that time. I I tell you the the most seemingly maybe insignificant to the person at that time was my family doctor, and I I was fifteen years old. I'm sitting on the exam table, and my mother's in the room, and he just knew something was wrong. By the time I was fifteen, I could barely talk. I was just like a wreck. Just mumbled, you know. He, he knew something was wrong. Yeah. Probably knew he couldn't get it out of me or them. And he just, I had my shirt off. He was listening to my chest, you know, so I was I was naked in my skin. And he put his hand on my shoulder. And it was really close to me. And he just, just said something like that, like, you're going to be okay. You're going to be good. Whatever it was, it was so powerful to me. Just this this man's, you know, naked palm of his hand on my neck and like no sex, you know, not just pure. 
hey man i became yeah. a doctor just yeah. based on that encounter like i want to do that yeah. you know so yeah. everyone has access to that and you have a sixth sense i think yeah. and if you're listening you can hear in kids who are wounded you can feel it when they're troubled or they're and uh and yeah that's your job you know to reach out to that kid in whatever way you can and just hear them see them you know look and and you just may never know and if it gets into a conversation about it you know you got to be wise because if it's a kid in a family system you know there are repercussions we we adopted three kids out of foster right. care three three siblings and they're six eight and nine right who were sexually physically abused and you know it's it's not they came they were pulled out of their family when it came to light they've been in foster care for three years when they came to us they've been split up they've been the foster care system is a pit of hell so don't try to get all heroic if you're not willing to be the hero yourself calling cps is not an answer in and of itself and haven't been a doctor in an er you know and the old child abuse, you know, the social services system in our country is so fractured and in and of itself destructive. Our son was being abused in that home, that foster home he was brought in. So it's kind of like, you know, be, don't, don't go too far with this in a way that you don't either have knowledge or willingness to, to sacrifice fully for, or you could end up doing more harm than good. So right. if you're, you know, if you're going to take that step of like, well, I really, More yeah, yeah, I, I, I suspect like there's abuse or something, but, or even the kid tells you, you yourself as the adult have to reach out for help, you know, and not just from, you know, the social services system. They don't know what they're doing either, but like try to, in a wise way, um, do the right thing and, you know, don't think you can just be an instant hero in a situation where a kid's being abused. It's way more, there's way more to it. Right. What were the statistics that you told me yesterday? Is it 85% of kids in the foster care system are assaulted, sexually assaulted? Was no, that what you no, said? That's, so in our homeless kids program, where we in total had, had 600 kids come through in the six and a half years that, that I ran it, um, it's, it was a, between 75 and 85% of those kids were abused. That doesn't mean sexual or physical. Um, we didn't keep like careful records like it was an interview. This is the staff talking to each other in meetings. Um, and and that, that abuse could right. Right. embody, you know, physical, sexual, or both. Those are, those are homeless kids. Runaways. And that makes good sense because, yeah, you're like out of there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this has been really shitty. Okay, gotta go. Bye. Also really hard. Felt guilty my whole yeah. life for not, you know, every time I ran away, I'd come back. You know, like felt guilty, but it's really hard to run away from home. Yeah. So if you didn't, don't feel bad about it. It's yeah. hard. A lot of reasons. <sighs> um. I love how you've uh, created these safe spaces and really looked at creating safety and security for kids with your life, with your entire life. Um, and I'd love to 
I'd love to just, we don't have a ton of time left and I want you to have some space to tell us about no means no worldwide. If there's anything else that you want to say about that work that you've done or any, anything else that you want to talk about. Yeah, I, I would be mislabeled as no means no worldwide. I do not believe in that program anymore. Tragically, nor I'm worth defending the one before it, nor these are programs my wife Could started. You talk, talk about that. And well, she got thrown out of no means no worldwide because uh -huh. she has a, she has a standard, which I don't know much about your, your um, studio. I forgot the name of it now, but. I'm assuming you have a standard like, you know, this is when you come into my class, I don't have like the dumbed down version. You know, you come to my class, I'm going to teach you to defend yourself. And and I, I believe you need to know these things and it takes this long to get them. And I'm a qualified instructor and I and like, like we, we believe that that's really important. Um, they're actually fairly easy to learn these things, but to teach them in a way that the, the recipient, your student is, is safe at the end of the course you know, is really important to us. And they seem to have just dumbed it down. Yeah. Like that's what everybody does. When they, when they try to scale up, they're like, eh, cut this corner, cut that corner. I mean, at one point their instructors didn't like being tested because they felt threatened. So they just like dropped the test. And the way we learned it from my wife at the mm -hmm. time, Lee, who founded it was like, okay, it's a really hard test. <laughs> you have to get this score to pass. And before you can become a trainer of a trainer, you have to take the written, verbal, and, you know, like, so, yeah, so I don't, we don't have anything to do with them other than to try to be cordial because the world doesn't need more enemies. But what what, what I do is Ujamaa Africa, and then Lee's program is called Empower United. Thank you. Could you spell that for me? Yeah, it's U-J-A-M-A-A-Africa. So we're, you know, we're all, Thank you. so tell us about that. Yeah. We're all, you know, my, my, from the first day, it's like lose the white guy, lose the Mazungo as, as, as it is in Swahili. Um, you know, so I'm the last white guy left and now I have a third wife who's a dream got well enough to like find somebody who wasn't all broken. And what, what a concept, huh? <laughs> And so she, she's kind of, you know, she's, she's been dragged into it, but we're the only white people. This is all Africans, 210 full-time employees in really some super intense places, South Sudan and Somalia, terrible for, you know, failed states, terrible for women and girls there. And then Kenya and Malawi. And uh, so that is what I'm talking, all the research is from us. None of it's from no means no worldwide. You can't stand that they put it on their website. Like you didn't do any of that. If you look at the papers, Sylvia, you'll see that it's me or Benjamin, you know, it's we're the, we're the actual researchers um, uh, who, who collaborate with mm -hmm. these universities. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a standard to it. I'm glad in the U S it's much more established. You know, you don't just have people setting up studios. They've been through, you know, uh, National Women's Martial Arts Federation, you know, you have a certification, you know, and so that, right. that is, uh, that is what I believe in. It's not rocket science and girls learn it quickly, but to teach it well, you need to know that. So anyway, that's not sure if that's what you were asking, but I would say if I, if there's how many minutes are there left? 
Uh, let's say there are five. Five. If I would say anything in five minutes, I'd say, you know, if if you if you've been through this, because that's near and dear to me, you know, like just don't give up. That's the, that's the thing. Don't yeah. don't give up. It's like it's not your fault, you know, and you're not alone. There's a lot of people like Sylvia who directed me in this call to speak to you. You know, that's what she cares about is you people listening. Men, especially, she said, you know, yeah. like, don't freaking give up. It was not your fault. <laughs> You're not alone. They're people. Unfortunately, you need people. I hate that, too. But, you know, there are people around you, you know, some of the survivors who want to help you. And, and, and you will, it's possible if you live as long as I have. I didn't want to live till I was basically 56. I never wanted to be alive, you know, my whole 56 years gave me a choice i'd say dad you know i did a lot of things that were so dangerous that could be considered suicidal like you don't you hate yourself so much you know but if you could just get past and like i'm past that now and like i'm actually like oh my god i'm so grateful i had that experience because look at what i get to do with it and um and so just yeah. just try to just somehow live you know and try to love yourself and you know just don't give up. You're not alone. That's what I would say in whatever minutes I have. You're not alone. Yeah. It's so good. It's such a good message. You're not alone. And if you can't love yourself, you find people like me and like Jake who will love you till you can love yourself. Perfect. And there are a lot of people who will love you till you believe it. Perfect. Yes. And a lot of people who will listen and believe. Yes. Mm. Hmm. There was something else I wanted to say, but I forgot. I'm crying. <laughs> Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Yeah, thanks for sharing your story and being so honest about it. And um, this is the way... This is the way we change the world, you know, one conversation at a time, taking one step and putting it in front of the other. And um, it's so great. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, you bet. It's affirmation time. This is how I end every self-defense class. It's kind of cheesy, but it's very cool. And this is how it works. We're going to do like a little call and response. If you can say this out loud, if you can repeat after me, do it, because it's important, I think, for you to hear your own voice. But if you can't, like if you're on a crowded subway or someplace where it's embarrassing, don't worry. You can also just say it inside your head. Okay? So I'm going to say something, and you're going to repeat it after me. I'm going to give you space to do that. And at the end, we're going to say yes. Here we go. Repeat after me. I am worth protecting. I love myself. I belong. I deserve to take up space on planet Earth. 
I am a strong and powerful person. Yes! Woohoo! And hey, as a wrap up, will you do me a favor? Will you do all the things that you do when there's a podcast? Like, will you tell your friends? Will you subscribe? Will you come back each week? Communicate with me? Review this podcast? Like, all those things to help get more bandwidth, help more people find out about it. That would be super awesome. Take a deep breath. You are amazing. Thank you for being with me. See you next time.